Arizona Sports is proud to present the Uprising Podcast. Uprising Podcast. Hello, and welcome into another edition of the Uprising Podcast, a podcast about Phoenix Rising Football Club. I am your host, Jake Anderson. My guest today is Joe Lowry, who actually used to cover Phoenix, and he did so under the Twitter handle Rising Tactics. If you're familiar with the program, you may have seen that. Since then, Joe has now started to cover MLS and the U.S. men's national team. He has a podcast as well. He's a contributor to the Total Soccer Show as well as The Athletic. And I wanted to bring him on to discuss all things U.S. men's national team as it stands right now. The U.S. is coming off of the 3-2 extra time victory to lift the first ever CONCACAF Nations League final that took place on Sunday. And because Greg Berhalter... U.S. men's national team head coach, has said that he will be having a more MLS-based roster for the 2021 Gold Cup. I thought this was a perfect time to bring Joe onto the show because he has such a unique and a a really good tactical analytical ability to break down what is happening on the pitch and going forward with the U.S. going to be going into qualifying for the 2022 World Cup and kind of what the whole cycle will be like with this new generation of of talent for the U.S. as it pertains to the 2026 World Cup that will be held in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. That's also expanded from 32 to 48 teams for the first time. So, all that being said, let me bring on Joe Lowry. It's good seeing you, man. It's it's honestly been too long since we had you on the podcast. I mean, last time we recorded, we had the uh, infamous 45-minute USL preview that just didn't want to... Uh, <laughs> Didn't want to carry over, and so I couldn't post it. But uh, how you been, man? It's good to have you back, Jake. It's good to it's good to talk to you. It's good to see you. We're seeing each other over Zoom, even though the listeners aren't seeing us. It's it's great to be back, and hopefully, this episode will actually make it into the feed. You know, I think because Owen is not on it to make it a three way call, maybe we'll have some better <laughs> some better luck. It, it was. I, I'm happy to blame it on Owen. I have no issue with that whatsoever. And because I brought you on to specifically talk about the U.S. men's national team, I'll, I'll, we can definitely blame it on the Welshman because <laughs> my Italian side will be playing them on Father's Day in the Euros. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a little bit. So first, obviously, Sunday was the Nations League final of the U.S. Uh, coming from behind multiple times to end up winning that match 3-2. So just off the bat, your thoughts on the match in general. I followed your tweets, obviously, and... Uh, as always, you're a, you're a great follow, especially when the national team is playing. It was one of the craziest games I've ever seen, bar none. Not not just U.S. men's national team games, but one of the craziest games of soccer I've ever seen. I think it went for 144 minutes in terms of running time. There were pitch invaders. There was things being thrown on the field. I mean, there, there were there were scrums and Weston McKinney being put in a chokehold. There were VAR decisions that that we'd never seen before, really, in this region. Back and forth, the U.S. coming behind, coming from behind twice to tie it at 2-2 and then get that, that penalty kick goal that Christian Pulisic placed so well. So many things happened, and not all of them are good things. Don't get me wrong. I'm not condoning some of this stuff. But in terms of, of making for a compelling soccer game, this, this match had it all on Sunday. So I was in attendance for the 2015, what was the name of it, the CONCACAF Cup back then when yeah. they would play when it was the two winners of the Gold Cup playing each other to represent the CONCACAF in the, in the uh, Confederations Cup, which is no longer a thing now. Um, but that game was in Pasadena, and that game is the only game I can actually say that it reminded me of, but 
Sunday's game as a viewer at home, I completely agree with you. It was insanity. Uh, I was talking to some people who aren't from this side of the world and asking, is this normal for U.S., Mexico? And I said, maybe not the all-out war or the brawls that we were seeing, but in terms of the intensity and the passion that we were seeing, especially from the fans, and again, not talking about the the chants that were going on, talking about the, the soccer-related stuff, obviously. Sure. That is normal. That intensity from the fans is very normal in their relationship uh, between our countries as rivals. Um, so anyway, my question to you is, how much emphasis are you putting in, in the fact that it, it is the nation's league, you know, it, it not it isn't necessarily the most glamorous of trophies. Um, in my eyes, it's the third most important trophy the United States can win. Um, and realistically, it's probably the second trophy that they have a legitimate chance to win. Obviously, the, the World Cup being number one. But as it stands right now, I don't think the United States has a legitimate chance to win a World Cup in 2022. For me, it's, it's about this nation's league tournament. Because I hear a lot of people... Talking, talking bad about it, talking trash about the Nations League. And, and I'm, I'm here for that to an extent. FIFA starts up tournaments and it's a way for them to generate revenue, right? We, we know that about FIFA. But at the same time, this tournament has value for the, the lower, smaller nations in CONCACAF and in this region in, in North and Central America. But it also had value for the United States and for Mexico. Both of these two teams and, and Costa Rica and Honduras they brought their big guns to this tournament. They brought their best players. And so really a tournament only matters as, as much as these teams say it matters. And with Greg Berhalter and Tata Martino specifically bringing their top groups to this tournament and choosing the Nations League over the Gold Cup, yeah, we might say historically the Gold Cup has more value. And I, I would say that this summer, I'm not necessarily sure I would agree with that just because Berhalter and Martino went out and, and they brought their big guns and that made for an incredibly exciting game. So speaking of Greg Berhalter, do you think that he is a coach that will take the United States men's national team to new heights in the next, you know, five years, maybe I'll include 2026. Should he still be the head coach at that time? But do you think he can take the United States to maybe a quarterfinal for the first time since 2002? Can he? Sure. Yeah. It's hard because his tenure has been so weird. Because 2020 was a wash. There was one game at the start of 2020 and then a couple of games in, in November and then a weird pool in December and then headed into 2021. So he had 2019 to, to mold this team and there were a lot of mixed results, a, a Gold Cup final loss where the U.S. didn't play all that poorly. They, they created chances in that 2019 loss to Mexico, one nothing in the Gold Cup final. But then they come out and get toasted in a friendly 3 nothing to Mexico a few months later where Berhalter essentially was using that game as a training exercise. So it's been a lot of mixed results, a loss in, in, in Nations League. No, in, uh, in a tournament. Yeah, it was Nations League to Canada back then as well. So there, there's been poor results, but I appreciate what Greg Berhalter is trying to build. I appreciate how he's trying to change the style of American soccer and have this team play in a little bit more of an expansive fashion, to use the ball a little bit more than we would have seen in the past from previous iterations of the U.S. men's national team. So I, I think those are good things. It hasn't always worked, and it's looked really bad in moments. It looked pretty bad against Honduras for the second two-thirds of that Nations League semifinal last week, and, and it didn't look great against Mexico. But I will say, the, the biggest thing that Greg Berhalter has in his favor right now as far as being able to take the men's national team to new heights is the talent that he now has at his disposal. He has this young upcoming generation where, where he didn't really fully have that in 2019 he didn't have a lot of chances to, to work with the european player pool which was still very much growing and emerging and, and 
getting their, their feet under them over in Europe. And that's still happening now, but it's two years removed from that 2019, obviously. So these players have some more experience and they're able to play more minutes with the U.S. men's national team. So I, I appreciate some of the things that Brother's doing tactically. I don't think it's always worked. Some personnel choices have been, have been puzzling to me. But I appreciate that against Mexico, he was a little bit more tactically flexible, played a little bit more defensive and, and that allowed them to absorb a little bit more pressure and then and choose their moments to attack and be dangerous on set pieces. That I think was a good tactical evolution from him for that specific game. And, and I think the biggest thing in his favor that could allow him to take this group to new heights is the group itself. Speaking of that European player pool, I, I did a quick count uh, during the Mexico game just to see how many have a parent club that is European. And I believe my count was at 18 or 19 of the 23, um, which definitely in our lifetime is something that has really never happened to have that many players be playing for European teams or have a parent club be a parent, excuse me, be a European team. But who are some guys that may not be as well known? Obviously, we know Christian Pulisic, Weston McKinney, Gio Reyna, Serginio Dess, Zach Steffen. Those are the big guys who are actually playing for their clubs in Europe. But who are some guys who might not play for Barcelona, might not play for Juventus, and might even still be in MLS that are on your radar? Sure, yeah. I think we saw we saw one of the guys on my radar big time at the end of that U.S.-Mexico game, or, or at least halfway through because it, it ended up being so darn long. Tim Weah. He didn't play a lot for Lille, the, the Liga French champions this past season. He played, I think, 800, 800 to 1,000-ish minutes in the league for them, which is not not a lot. But he's a guy who has so much talent. He's played for PSG. He's played for Celtic. Now he's playing for Lille. He, he has so much quality. And you can see the trust that Berhalter and, and the coaching staff have in him to put him on in a big moment when the U.S. needed momentum. They needed attacking play against Mexico. Tim Weah comes on. And I, I think he's a player to watch. So skillful. Can play a number of different positions. Mostly plays out wide. I, I really enjoy watching Tim Weah. Another attacking guy. Brendan Aronson, he plays for RB Salzburg after moving over to Europe from the Philadelphia Union in Major League Soccer. He's direct, he's quick on the ball, he's skillful in in terms of his dribbling. He has good vision. He's still learning how to find space in the attack, I think, but he'll press and he'll do a lot of that stuff. He needs to up his physicality a little bit, but a, a move to Leipzig to join up with Jesse Marsh and Tyler Adams is not necessarily out of the picture for him after a couple of years or so. I got to bring it up because, A, he wasn't called up by Burhalter, but then also, B, he plays for Roma, which is my team, Brian Reynolds. <laughs> uh, just your thoughts on him. He, he got a little bit of time with Roma, uh, but not a ton. But obviously with, uh, with Jose Mourinho coming in, there's kind of no telling what's, what's going to happen there. But your thoughts on Brian Reynolds as a, as a footballer? Yeah, I mean, and he did travel with this group. So he, he's a player. He, he wasn't on the game day roster, but he – and Daryl DK both were with this, this Nations League group. And, and we actually, I think he's got a little knock, so we won't see him against Costa Rica. But he's a very talented player. He's also so very raw right now. So he, he can attack. He can get forward. He's so fast. He's dangerous on the dribble. He can take a big touch and just run right by you. He's still developing the defensive side of his game. And that's actually, I'm really curious. This could work out really well with Jose Mourinho coming in to take over or... Jose could look, take one look at him and say, yeah, you're not good enough. You're not really going to play a part of this uh, for this group. And so we'll see Brian Reynolds with Roma in preseason and we'll have a better idea of what Jose thinks of them. But I mean, stylistically, Mourinho tends to play more defensive soccer and that could help a guy like Brian Reynolds, who's so young, 19 or 20. It'll help him develop and, and add that little 
that little piece, that important piece to his game, because he did get, I think, one, two or three starts for Roma this year. His first start, I think, was against Bologna. Not, not particularly good at right back, struggled with his defensive positioning. And then he played left back, and I actually thought he looked a lot better. Uh, so he can do both of those jobs, more of a, a long-term right back. But a guy with such high potential just needs some more uh, refining in his game right now. Yeah, I believe he's 19 years old still at the moment. And uh, obviously, I'm probably the only one out of anyone listening to this right now that watches Roma games consistently. And (laughs) and they're going to be, under Jose Mourinho, they will go back to four at the back to whereas uh, under their previous manager, Paulo Fonseca, who's rumored to go to Fenerbahce now, um, they were running a three at the back system with two outside wingers or wing backs, I should say. Um, And those were the positions where you would have found Brian Reynolds in. So not a true fullbacks position for the old coach under Jose, should he get playing time, would be going back to the true fullback. So, spoke about a little bit earlier about the Gold Cup coming up this summer. Uh, it just seems like COVID has ramped up the summer tournaments in terms of having to push everything back. We have a Gold Cup, a Copa America, a Euros. But speaking of the 2021 Gold Cup, what are your expectations for the U.S. men's national team? And who is their biggest competitor or challenger not named Mexico? Sure. Yeah, I, I expect this Gold Cup to be, it, it's going to be different, right? Because the Nations League and the Gold Cup get scheduled for the same summer. Greg Berhalter has said publicly he's not going to be using many of the same guys for both tournaments. So we're not going to see Christian Pulisic, certainly. We're not going to see Sergio Dest, Weston McKinney, all these guys. We're, we're not going to see Tyler Adams, right? we're going to see a much more domestic MLS-based pool with, with maybe a couple European guys sprinkled in there that were either on this Nations League roster or, or just missed the cut. So as far as my expectations go, I, I think the U.S. still should be competitive, especially because I expect similar things from Mexico in terms of, of squad rotation. So they should be competitive. Their, their biggest competition in this tournament, I think, will be similar names. Uh, it will be Costa Rica, will be Honduras. I mean, the region is still talented in a lot of ways even though we don't necessarily always consider some of these other teams in north and central america on par with with the u.s and mexico there's still quality in this in this area i think i think i'm really excited to see the u.s bring in some of these younger mls-based guys maybe a james stance from nycfc who plays he can play center back or he can play a number six spot which are both positions of need i think for the u.s men's national team right now he could be a great guy to watch some some young attacking talent as well we might get to see caden clark from the new york red bulls who uh, was down here in Arizona at the Barca Residency Academy in Casa Grande. So, I mean, there's, there's exciting young players that we just haven't gotten to see with the national team, haven't really gotten to see with the youth national teams either here for the U.S. I, I think this could be a chance for them to break in, and maybe one or two guys could sneak a spot on, on the World Cup qualifying roster in September. Which brings me into my next question, which is about World Cup qualifying, which is a sore subject for most Americans. <laughs> Um, and as an Italian American, the 2018 World Cup was tough terrible. You, huh? Yeah, it was. That was a tough one. Um, but obviously, uh, going forward for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, which is going to be played in November and December, that should be interesting in itself. But just your thoughts on a: Is the United States going to make it this time? But b: if, if, Should they make it? What are you expecting to see out of uh, what's probably going to be a very, very young group? heading over to the other side of the world to play in what's going to be probably their first uh, international tournament, a big one anyway, at, uh, at, their, at this time in their careers. Are they going to make it to the 22 World Cup? Yes. I'm, I'm saying yes. There's too much talent for this team not to make it. The last cycle, 
there was not a lot of talent in that group, right? You had some of the younger guys just barely emerging. We saw Christian Pulisic crying on the field in Trinidad and Tobago after that loss. But I mean, it was Omar Gonzalez at center back. It was just a, a group that didn't have an overwhelming amount of talent. This is different. And, and I think I have more faith in Greg Berhalter, tactically speaking, than I did of Bruce Arena. But I also have more faith now, especially after that, that Mexico game on Sunday. I have more faith in this, this group's ability, this young group's ability to flip the switch and to play an intense game of soccer when you're on a, an away field somewhere in Central America and the grass is too long and, and the conditions are bad. And it's hard for you to play out of the back and it's hard for you to build and create chances in possession. I have more faith in this group. It's, it's one data point, yes, but I do have more faith in this group to up the intensity and to play. It's, it's so cliche, but I think it's important. You need to be able to win battles in midfield. You need to be able to move the ball forward aggressively to, to capitalize on set pieces. Now we've gotten a taste of this group doing that. So, so after that Sunday game, I have even more faith. I already thought they were going to qualify, but I, I have that little extra hope and faith in this group to be able to do that. Now, once they get there, Jake, it's, it's a really tough question, right? It's a really hard thing to envision because so much can change now from, from 2021 into 2022. It's a little over a year away, that World Cup. I mean, what, there are injuries that can happen. There's so many different factors that come, come into play here, but I don't think cur- currently my expectation is not for the U.S. to make it out of their group, but I, I don't think it's impossible for that to happen and for them to reach the round of 16 and, and to cause teams problems. They have the talent to do that. Now we just have to wait and see if that actually happens. Yeah. And there's so many factors that go into it, especially I think the biggest one is just not knowing who your group is and, and that yeah. can, that can affect everything. And, and we'll get to the euros here in a second, but just seeing over the years, how each group can affect you in terms of, we look at 2006 and Italy was in the same group as the United States. They also had the Czech Republic and Ghana. And the United States didn't make it out of the group. That, But you look at uh, the following World Cup in 2010 when the United States is paired with England. The United States won the group. So mm-hmm. it was it's kind of... It's kind of crazy what ends up happening in these in these World Cups. Now, something I've been saying is not that I'm not going to care about the 22 World Cup. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm going to. But from a U.S. men's perspective... I'm not putting as much emphasis or maybe the word expectations is the right word because in 2026, obviously a, we've already qualified, but B these kids, cause let's face it. They're, they're kids right now. These kids are going to be 23, 24, 25, 26 years old. Right. And they're going to be in the, probably the prime of their careers. And it's, I, I think the word golden generation gets thrown around a lot, but I think that 2026 world cup in the United States with this generation, I mean, to me, I mean, I, I'm excited for a, a competition that's, that's what, five years away? I mean, yeah. when, when you think about what's going to happen in 26, what do you foresee happening? What do you foresee? I mean, and remember, and this is the World Cup that gets, that gets expanded from 32 to 48. I, I think looking at the group now, Jake, you're spot on. They're, they're going to be hitting their primes for that 2026 tournament, and it'll be a special It'll be a special thing for these guys, right? To have it played primarily on home soil. Some games in, in Canada, some games in Mexico. I'm sure the U.S. will play all of their games in the United States. Um, but it, it's going to I be... almost guarantee inc- that financially. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to be an incredible opportunity for this group, and they'll be hitting their strides. I, I can't wait to see this crop of players and, and the players that are coming up behind them because there are players coming up behind them getting ready to make similar moves or, or to star in MLS and then make moves. 
it, it, we're starting to see more and more players produced here in the United States. And that's exciting. 2026 should be the window. It should be really the, the opening of the window where the United States is more of a legitimate competitor in a World Cup. Because 2022, we talked about it already, maybe not the right time. Not that, not that it's not going to be exciting and not that we're not going to learn about this group and the players in it and we're not going to have a good time watching those games. But 2026 is the time for us to be able to start expecting a deeper run, even in an expanded tournament. Yeah. The, the experience I think is going to be the, the biggest one is you, these guys literally haven't done what they're going to be doing next year before, right? None of them have yeah. played in a world cup. They can't even rely on a 2018 experience, which really sucks in terms of going forward. But I'm going to turn this over now to the little bit of a, a European euros preview. We won't dive too much into it, but I just want to hear who you think the favorites are and maybe some some players to look out for because just myself going through each group, I have had a million different versions of which four group, or excuse me, which four third place teams are going to be making it out because with the way this tournament is designed with 24 teams and six groups of four, I mean, every every single game matters because, I mean, you got a third place team is going to be playing uh, this team, but if they finish second, then that completely changes the bracket. So what are you looking forward to from Euro 2020 slash 21, which opens up on Friday with uh, Italy and Turkey? Yeah, I mean, Jake, first of all, I'm not just uh, pandering here. I think Italy have a lot of talent, and I think they're going to be... We don't do well when we have expectations. (laughs) Okay, here, let me try this, Jake. Uh, (laughs) Italy, I don't see them making it out of the group. I think Wales, Turkey, and Switzerland will all trounce them in group. No, I I do think Italy could be good, but I'll move past that to to another team that I think I'm really interested in, and that's England, man. They have so much quality... Yeah, there are, are questions about how the roster was constructed, but I think it's a great group, and I, I think they can be dangerous on set pieces. They have the quality to be dangerous in open play. Mason Mount and, and Jack Grealish and Phil Foden, Raheem Sterling, Jaden Sancho, so much attacking talent that can either create chances and, and, and capitalize on chances themselves, or they can find Harry Kane if he can be an option in the box. It's a really strong group with, with some solid players at the back as well. So I, I'm really excited for them. Group F as well is just ridiculous. It is insane. Group F. You've got you've got France, Germany, Portugal, and Hungary who've unfortunately be pl- been placed in that group. Also, I, I think France and Portugal are legitimate uh, contenders to win this whole thing. Uh, I previewed Portugal recently on an episode of the Total Soccer Show. They have Cristiano Ronaldo who scored the most goals of any player in this competition. In, in the most, he's the the leading active goal scorer in that region. He loves to start up top and then drift out to that left side. They have Bernardo Silva, Manchester City's Bernardo Silva. They have Manchester United's Bruno Fernandes. There's so much. Jao Felix. Yeah, Jao Felix as well, who can play as a, a second forward or as a tanner on the left side. There's just quality everywhere when you look at this team. Maybe a little thin at center back, but I'm not even particularly worried about that. And then France in that group also. You have uh, Kareem Benzema coming back in after a, a pretty unfortunate scandal on his part. Coming back into yeah. this group, and you add him to Mbappe and... And Griezmann playing connect, that connector role in between midfield and attack. You have Kante to, to clean things up. Pogba, I, I mean, there's just a, an embarrassment of riches for, for Group F. And I'm not even talking about Germany there. I don't, I don't think there'll be quite as much of a threat as France or, or Portugal. But, I mean, then you even have some, some smaller teams that I think could cause real problems. Poland, Switzerland, Denmark, uh, not, not, not tiny countries here. Austria, Ukraine. I mean, there are 
any number of teams that I think could make a quote unquote surprising run, but it, it won't even be all that surprising because almost every team in this tournament has one or two players that you look at and say, wow, that guy can win you a game or that guy can win you a game. And it's going to make, I think, for a pretty exciting tournament. Oh, I'm, I'm absolutely in agreement with everything you just said. I, I think uh, a dark horse team of mine is Turkey. Uh, yeah. If you look at the way the bracket is constructed, if they were to finish runner up in group A, they would have a more favorable route to maybe make it to a semifinal, which I, I don't think a lot of people, when they think Turkey, think top four team in the Euros. So to to your point with, with how, how deep England is, or excuse me, how deep France is, um, how good England is, um, we saw what they did in the World Cup, making it to a semifinal. So looking at it, looking at the Euros, to me, you mentioned Germany and, and, and I don't want to write off Germany just because, just because of at, at the individual name basis that they have when it comes to a nil-nil game, like you just said, one guy can get you a goal. And, and I, this may not be the, the fluent free-playing Germany that we saw you know, when they won the World Cup in 2014 – um, obviously, 20, 2018 was a disaster uh, for the Germans. But uh, you look at them from a name by name basis, and it's just hard to it's just hard to count them out. But I do agree with you. To me, there are I'll say seven teams that can win it. Um, that's obviously the the main countries of, of France, Italy, Germany, Portugal, England, um, and Belgium is is yeah. my seventh. And then, like you just mentioned. Um, I think Denmark has a chance. You have Christian Eriksen, and 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 I'm blanking on his name. He plays for Barcelona. He's a striker. Um, oh, Braithwaite. Yeah, right. Yeah, there we go. Perfect. Exactly. Um, and then, uh, like I said, you have uh, Croatia made a 2018 final. They're a little bit older than they were, but if you look at where all of these guys play in terms of each team, predominantly they're all playing in in what you would call the, the you know the Fab Five, the Power Five, whatever you want to call those leagues. And it's just again Austria that that and, and Ukraine and Netherlands in the same group, and it's just kind of like Netherlands isn't what the same that they used to be. Now I think they're on the are on their way back, but like those groups, you really have no idea who's going to win those groups. And to go to Group F, just if we want to really dissect Group F, I was looking at how the each game was constructed, and you have. You have Germany and France playing each other first, and then Portugal plays uh, France at the end. So in my eyes, theoretically, you could potentially have a German team that is going into the final match day with maybe zero to three points. Let's say they lose to France and then tie Portugal. They have one point. Now they're playing Hungary last. Let's say they beat them. Germany finishes with four points. If Portugal has four points from beating Hungary and tying Germany, and France has six points from uh, beating, excuse me, if they have, uh, yeah, six points from beating Portugal, or I can't even talk, from beating Germany <laughs> and uh, beating Hungary. We've seen this in World Cup pass where on the final day, you could see pass a Portugal around, and France guys. pass it around and tie each other. Then France finishes seven points, Portugal has five, and Germany has four. So I, I don't, th- and Portugal was one of those teams that did it. I'm specifically thinking about 2010, I believe it was, in the World Cup. When uh, and it's amazing to see Portugal makes it out of these groups with not most necessarily the most uh, impressive group stage performances. Euro 2016, they tied all three of their matches and ended up winning yeah. the whole thing. Um, 
but I'll end, I'll end it there. I was, I'm just, I'm just excited to see a tournament that I was supposed to go to uh, Owen and I were mm. actually supposed to go to the father's day game, Italy, Wales. I, I just sold two of those tickets. I have two more if anyone wants to go to that, <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, I, I, we didn't even talk about Cup America, which is also happening, but I don't, I don't watch uh, come up ball as much as I should probably. Um, it's just, there's, there's too, there's too much. I, there's, yeah. there's, there's MLS, there's USL happening as we speak. The European leagues just ended. Now we got international football. It's just, but I ask you, how do you keep up with all of it? What's your secret? Oh man. Spending too much time watching soccer. That's, it's not much of a secret. It's just the way it goes. <laughs> it, it's hard. It's hard to keep up with all of it. I'm thankful that MLS is on a little bit of a break right now. They'll be back during the Euros, and that's going to be really challenging for my schedule. But it's all good stuff, man. I, I can't complain. I, I feel for the players, in a sense, though. You just finish a, a long season with a compressed schedule, and now you're going right in, the, the top players are going right into another long competition. It, it's hard, man. These guys need a break, and, and it's it's kind of a shame that this tournament had to be played this summer. Obviously there's major circumstances and reasons behind that, but I feel for these guys and I, I hope they are able to get some rest after this whole thing's done. No, I, that's something my grandfather has been saying for years now that these guys are playing too many games too quickly. Yeah. We're, we're seeing what we saw what happened to Liverpool this year. Right. And because of that, we're not going to get to see Virgil van Dijk in the euros and Kevin De Bruyne, according to Roberto Martinez should be available after the first game. Um, it's just a player like that who you could argue is, if not a top five player, the best player in the world at, right now in his form and to not see him get to play for his national team, at least for one game, is a little disappointing. Um, I will say, though, if Italy and Belgium win their group, they are scheduled <laughs> to play in the quarterfinals. Um, uh, but like I said, I'll leave it there. Joe, I appreciate the time taking yourself excuse me, taking the time out of your day to join me talk of footy. We covered a lot, man. Uh, it's good seeing you. Uh, obviously, we could talk all day, but, you know, you got you got big, uh, big fish to fry and uh, other stuff to cover. So I'll let you go. And uh, thanks again for uh, coming on, man. Yeah, Jake, thanks for having me. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. And uh, I'd love to come back sometime. All right, man. I'll see you. And once again, that was Joe Lowry. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Joe C. Lowry, that's J-O-E-C-L-O-W-E-R-Y. He's got a link on his Twitter bio if you would like to listen to his podcast as well. I highly recommend you do. If you liked anything that Joe had to say, anything you heard today, U.S. Men's National Team, apply it to MLS. It's the same level, high level of analytical breakdown. And with that being said, that's going to do it for this edition of the Uprising Podcast. Phoenix Rising's next match is on Saturday at 7.30 against Tacoma Defiance at Wild Horse Pass in Chandler. You can catch all the action on ArizonaSports.com, as well as the Arizona Sports app, which is available for both iOS and Android. To keep up with all things Phoenix Rising all season long, be sure to follow Arizona Sports and myself on Twitter, which you can do at JWA1994. Until next time, chivadiamo, adopo, ciao.